Amen. Let me invite you now to stand and turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, and we've been in a series called Simple Gifts, and this morning we look at the simple gift of peace that our Savior gives us at one of the more prominent prophetic passages of Scripture that gives the location of the birth of the Savior. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. We've looked at Isaiah 9 the last two weeks. And in 700 B.C., in the same way that Isaiah lays out the case against Israel for their sin, Micah also does the same. His name in Hebrew is translated, Who is like God? And that inspires us to consider the greatness and the wonder of who God is, how He is in control, and how we together as His people can have peace. And it's one of the reasons we celebrate Christmas is the peace that our Savior has brought us. So Micah chapter 5, and I'll read verses 1 through the first part of verse 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you that indeed the Savior is our peace. And we pray that we together might experience that peace, even in the chaos and craziness of our world, that we would reflect the wonderful theology that's mentioned here in these verses. And we pray that you would do it by your Spirit's power, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> People have a lot of angst in their life, don't they? I will cite... A lot of angst, a lot of unpeace. I'll cite two things for you. The first is when you're in a group of people and someone sneezes or someone coughs. Indeed, this is an unpeaceful situation now. We have things to be unpeaceful about that we didn't contemplate being unpeaceful about a few years ago. But also the way people fly in airplanes. This shows that we are unpeaceful. In fact, through May, there were 2,500 incidents of unruly passengers. 2,500 through year-to-day through May. Now that number is 5,400 and still climbing. Of those unruly passengers, about 400 instances require... FBI involvement and investigations, and that number 400 equals 2020 and 2019. 
A lot of people making the naughty list on airplanes this year. And I think what it does is it shows us that our capacity for dealing with chaos, our capacity for dealing with unpleasantness in life has collectively been reduced, I believe, both individually and as a country. It's been collectively eroded, worn out, and reduced by the level of unpeace, chaos, and anxiety that is the waters that we all swim in. In other words, you can't deal with unpeaceful situations in your life anymore because you're dealing with an unpeaceful life in our society, and it wears us down. And I want to look today at how Christians experience peace, because really, we should be the most peaceful people around. We should be the most secure people around. If we really believe the words of this Bible in the wonder of what it is to have salvation in Jesus Christ, we of all people should be the most peaceful. And so we're going to talk about this simple gift of peace that we're given, and we'll talk about it from Micah chapter 5, but a prerequisite to really experience peace, you must be a Christian. And I don't want to assume anything of anyone today, whether you're here today, whether you're listening uh, to this recorded message on our website or you're live streaming. I don't want to assume everyone is a Christian. To be a Christian means that we believe Jesus came to this earth and he came out of necessity and the mercy and generosity of God and he came that that which separates us from God, namely our sin, and sin is any one of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's a quotation from our shorter catechism. But sin is not just the bad things that we do. It's the good that we leave undone. It's our attitude, our disordered desires, our disordered loves deep within our heart. This sin separates us from a holy God. Something has to happen to bring us together, and that something is a someone born in Bethlehem, lived the perfect life for us, paid the penalty on the cross that we owed to God, taking on God's wrath, and then rising again in power. And so he reconciles us to God, and therefore we have peace with God. And so this peace is most fully experienced by Christians, and I want you to live into this peace at this Christmas time. Now, if you look at the outline that's in your bulletin, three things, all of them begin with knowing. One more prerequisite, not only do you need to be a Christian to experience peace, but this word knowing is not an intellectual knowing. It is an experiential knowing. So when I talk about knowing here, I'm talking about how you come to the apprehension of something through your experience. This is really knowing. This is the biblical sense of knowing. To know something in this way, we apprehend it experientially deep within our hearts and our whole being understands and knows. So it's much more significant than an intellectual knowing or giving an intellectual assent to. So with that, let's begin. How are we going to experience this gift of peace that Christ 
gives to his people. First, we're going to know the futility of our ways. That's sort of counterintuitive, right? But we must know that at the end of our efforts and our ways of establishing peace, at the end of that is the beginning of God giving us the gift of peace. And so we've got to know the futility of our ways. And those are portrayed for us right here in verse 1. What do we have? In the first part of verse 1, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. This is a call to military action. The siege was an ancient way to defeat cities. Cities were walled all around for protection, and so what did the army do? They came, and they would just camp out next to the walls of the city and wait. They wouldn't let anyone in. They wouldn't let anyone out. And eventually, the city would capitulate, having run out of supplies. Now, this passage prophesies about the Assyrians coming and laying siege against Jerusalem. They would do that, and we read about that in 2 Kings 18. And the Assyrians came, and they laid siege to Jerusalem, surrounding it, and in spite of the efforts to provision Jerusalem, there was even, uh, historically speaking, some stopping up of water supplies and sources outside of Jerusalem to make things as inhospitable for the invading army as possible. In spite of these efforts, what's going to happen? Look at the second half of verse 5. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And so there's some futility here. Muster the troops, but even though the troops are mustered, what happens? The judge of Israel, the ruler of Israel, the king of Israel still gets struck on the cheek, which is a humiliating blow. We would say in our time and language, that's a slap in the face. That's what's going on here. And we know this passage has both a near fulfillment and a distant one. And sometimes that's a feature of the prophetic literature. There's a near fulfillment, something that's going to happen in the near future, and a distant one. The near one here is the humiliation of Hezekiah, the king of Israel. What did he do? He sent all the precious and valuable articles that were in the temple, all the gold. He sent it to Sennacherib to pay tribute for the, because the Assyrians were invading. And they, were laying, they would lay siege at Jerusalem. And Hezekiah thought, if I give him this tribute, he'll go home. And what did the Assyrians do? It was futile. What did they do? Thank you very much. We're still coming. And they surrounded Jerusalem. And it was a humiliation of Hezekiah. And of course, you can read in 2 Kings 18 about the interchange, about the Assyrians proclaiming to the people of Israel, there is no God who has ever stopped the Assyrian army. Give up now. And the humiliation... That was happening in that day. Of course, what would happen? God would miraculously deliver his people. And an angel came, and we're told in Scripture, killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night and delivered Jerusalem from this siege. But the passage also has a distant fulfillment. Jesus was struck. In John 18, 22, we read the judge of Israel was struck. The ruler of Israel, the true Israel, was struck as well. And so this prophetic passage points to an effort, 
mustering your troops, but the futility of that effort, they still strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And what it does is it reminds us that peace is not our own to manufacture or to create. Sometimes what we do is we make peace contingent. Uh, Students, you might think, well, if I can just get through this week, if I can just get through finals week, then I'll have peace. What do we do as adults? We say, well, if I can just get through this certain time or this certain project at work, then I'll have peace peace. And we make peace contingent. And what do we try to do? We try to organize that peace. Or we try to control peace. And we try to say, listen, you people in my family, if you would just do what I'm saying to do, we would all have peace. My mom, I I remember her telling, you know, my sister and I, she would tell us, why can't you just get along? Um, And do you ever... Tell that to your loved ones around you. If you people would just get along, it would be peaceful. It is futile to do that. It is futile to do that because we can't control people. That doesn't stop us from trying, though. But we cannot control another person. And so if we make the peace we experience contingent on the behavior of another we have no control over, this is futile. And this is an invitation. This is your invitation this morning as you look at this verse and you see the futility of mustering the troops. As you see that futility, it is an invitation to stop trying to control people, stop trying to control things, and come to the end of yourself to come to the beginning of the point where God can give you peace. It develops in us a humility and a dependency any time we're reminded we're not in control. And I invite you to think about giving over those situations and those difficult people that won't do what you say and that won't give you peace to give those situations over to God and to give those situations over to God in prayer. In Mark 9, 29, the disciples encounter an unclean spirit, a demon that they are unable to cast out. Mark 9, 29 tells us that they go to Jesus privately because they're embarrassed by this unpeaceful situation that happens. And their efforts to cast this demon out, just like the efforts that we enact to try to gain our own peace, No matter the effort the disciples put into it, it's futile. They can't cast it out, and they're ashamed about this. And they come to Jesus privately, and they say, Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus tells them in Mark 9, 29, This kind only comes out by prayer. And I believe that's true about stubborn, powerful demons. And I believe that is true about the intractable, difficult situations and people God has given us in our life. That we would give those over to God in prayer as a reminder that we're not in control, that He is. And as a reminder of the futility of our own power, that we would know our limit and we would know the magnitude of God's power to act when we're not powerful 
enough. So I encourage you, give those situations over to God in prayer. You want to have peace? Give up and give over. Give over to God those intractable, difficult situations and give those over to Him in prayer. That leads us to our second point here. So knowing the futility of our ways, that's the first way we experience peace. But the second is related to the first. If we know the futility, we've got to know who's in control. And knowing God is in control. Remember, this is not an intellectual knowing. This is an experiential apprehension of this truth that God is sovereign. To say that He's sovereign means He doesn't ask permission from us to do what He's going to do. That He is powerful enough to act outside of second causes and to accomplish and to do his will. So knowing God is in control. Now proof that God is in control here, 700 years before Christ is born, we're going to be told the location of his birthplace. That's in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now Ephrathah means fruitful. It's a it, it's a a uh, Hebrew term that means fruitful, For that uh, Bethlehem was in a very fertile area. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And this passage reminds us that God only has plan A. He doesn't need plan B. He's always working his plan A perfectly. And this prediction of where Christ would be born, it's in Bethlehem. And we're told here the town is too little to be among the clans of Judah, not significant enough. But as well, we can know from the Assyrian invasion that at one time Bethlehem would have been behind enemy lines. So this is like saying... Out of North Korea will come a technological development that will benefit all mankind. We would say, that's crazy. North Korea isn't technologically advanced and they wouldn't share anything that would benefit anyone with anyone. But that is what this is saying. That Bethlehem, which is behind enemy lines or would have been behind enemy lines at one time, is the place Christ would be born from. So it's an incredible prophecy, and it is one that originates not just in the moment, but look at the end of verse 2, from of old, from ancient days. And what this does is it fits the birth of Christ into the redemptive plan of God, which goes all the way back to the very beginning. And we can think about the first pronouncement of the gospel which comes to us not in the New Testament, but in Genesis. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read, God addressing the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, he shall bruise your head. A mortal blow against the serpent, the defeat of the serpent, the victory of Christ. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, a wounding that happened at the cross. And so from of old reminds us that God has a sovereign plan, 
He is in control of that plan. He is working that plan. And we can be at peace when we know that the things that we experience, He is in control of. Even if those things are difficult for us, He is still in control. Then look at verse 3. Therefore, He shall give them up until the time. So this is the prophecy about Israel being, uh, the southern kingdom Judah being defeated by the Assyrians, carried off into exile, when she who is in birth, is in labor, has given birth, then the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. This is a passage that points to the restoration of the people of Israel, their restoration to the land, uh, the protection of a remnant. So God is Sovereign and powerful enough to protect a remnant, to send his people off into exile for a just judgment and punishment, and to return them to the land he is in control, and he has a plan. Cameron Cole, a gentleman who wrote a book, great book, Therefore I Have Hope, is the name of the book, Therefore I Have Hope, and it's subtitled, Twelve Truths That Comfort, Sustain, and Redeem tragedy. Excellent book written by someone who has experienced tragedy. You'll have to read the book. I don't want to talk about the tragedy he experienced because there won't be a dry eye in the place. But he recounts in this book, Therefore I Have Hope, he recounts a story about a woman in a hospital grieving a tragedy, and the hospital chaplain comes in. He tells this story. Hospital chaplain comes in to talk to this grieving woman. And he said, I want you to be encouraged. God had nothing to do with this. And she said, and I'm paraphrasing here, stop right there. Because if God didn't have anything to do with it, you're effectively taking away my only reason to have hope. The only reason sometimes you and I have hope when we're going through a tragedy or something difficult in our life, is that God is still in control. That He gives us the circumstances of our life. He doesn't ask us whether we like those circumstances or not. He gives us what we need to shape us, to grow us, to sanctify us. That chaplain by saying God had nothing to do with it, was taking away that woman's hope in the face of tragedy. We have hope and we can be at peace because there's no situation in your life that is out of God's control. And we don't know the reasons why difficult things happen to us but we know a God who does. We don't know why. We're not assured in this life of ever having the answers that maybe we're really seeking, but we know a God who has all the answers. And it's because of that that we can be at peace, that whatever we face, even when the effects of this fallen world splash up onto us in terrible and ugly ways, God, not being the author of evil, still allows the effects of the fall to be felt by his people, that we might grow and be shaped 
in dependency upon him. It doesn't make things any easier, but it means that even in the midst of tragedy, we can have hope. Even in the midst of difficult circumstances, we can still have peace because we know our God is in control. And so what this means for us is that we can grieve, we can experience sadness in our life. None of it is out of God's control. He is there with us even in the midst of our suffering. And so we experience tragedy differently as Christians. We experience it with the peace of God that he is in control. So, so far what I've shown you is I've shown you the gift of peace that God has given us. The gift of peace comes to us when we come to the end of our ways and the beginning of his, when we know the futility of our ways and we know at the same time that God is in control. And we also have peace, last point here, we also have peace knowing the good shepherd. Look at this in verse 4. And he, so this is the one who was born in Bethlehem, the ruler in Israel, verse 4, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock. To be standing there, to be portrayed that way, means Jesus is ready and able to help his people. He is ready and able to shepherd them. What does the shepherd do? He protects the flock. What, is, what does the shepherd do? He provides for his people. He leads them to green pastures. And this idea of Jesus being portrayed as standing, you can think for a moment, where else do you see Jesus standing? Where do you see Jesus standing in the New Testament at a moment of tremendous chaos and conflict with Stephen in Acts chapter 7? Stephen giving and recounting Old Testament history and the redemptive plan of God that points to Jesus. Acts chapter 7 Verses 55 and 56, we read of Stephen, Acts 7, 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he, Stephen, and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God standing in readiness to receive Stephen, standing in readiness to come to the aid of his people, standing in readiness to shepherd them, to guide them, to lead them to the green pastures, to care for his people. Standing and shepherding his flock means that we can have peace. Our Savior is there with us, able to help us, in our moments of tragedy, and there with us in our moments of triumph, he is standing and shepherding the flock. And then look at this in verse 4. We see the Trinitarian relationship. He stands and shepherds in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, pointing to this Trinitarian relationship, a peaceful relationship that works salvation for us. And what's the result of our shepherd standing and helping us and giving us peace. Look at the end of verse 4. And they shall dwell secure. They shall dwell secure. They shall know peace. 
for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. It's a verse 4 ends pointing us to the great commission that the greatness of Christ would be known in part through the peace that he provides to his people. And we know that peace because he's the good shepherd. And we know that peace, look at, look at verse 5, and he shall be their peace. How is Christ our peace except through this wonderful truth of justification? Justification is this reality. I've said it many times. Being a Christian is more than just being forgiven. Having peace with God means that we are justified. That our spiritual status is as one who is accepted by God and at peace with God because of what Christ has done for us. What has he done for us? He has imputed to us by faith alone his perfect righteousness such that sinners like us are reconciled to a holy God and at peace. What do people most need in this world? Peace with God. Peace with God comes to us through the justifying power of Jesus Christ, and he shall be their peace. He's our peace if we belong to him. All manner of chaos can be happening in our life. All manner of tragedy and difficult circumstances. We can still have peace because the ultimate peace our souls truly need is given to us at the cross. You know, sometimes we try to have our own peace by thinking through every eventuality, every scenario. Do you ever do that? We get into kind of disaster planning. And you know, I realize some of you are paid to think of the worst case scenario in your career. Please do that and be good at that. If you're not paid to do that, you probably don't need to be thinking about it because you will find yourself as you think through, what's the worst that can happen? Okay, let me see. There are a lot of things that could happen that are really bad. Or if you find yourself uttering those words, oh, it can't get any worse. You know, it's in moments like that, what we try to do is we try to garner and manufacture our own peace by thinking through and knowing every eventuality and situation that will happen. And we think if we think through enough and if we research enough what could happen, then we can prepare for it and have peace. But true biblical peace for the Christian, it doesn't come in knowing what could happen. It comes in knowing what did happen. It doesn't come in knowing what could happen and then planning for every contingency, scenario, and eventuality. It, true peace doesn't come in knowing what could happen, but it comes in knowing what did happen. And what did happen? Christ was born in Bethlehem. As a result of the sovereign redemptive plan of God, he, out of his generosity, gave us the Savior. And Jesus leads his people as the good shepherd, reconciling us to God, giving us peace with him through justification. And it's because of all that he did, he 
shall be their peace. He is our peace this Christmas. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, may we together know the peace of Jesus Christ. May we give up our attempts to think through every scenario and eventuality as a way or a method to have peace. May we together know the futility of our ways and give up that we might gain the peace which surpasses all comprehension. Lord, let us give over those situations to you that are intractable and difficult. Let us stop trying to control other people or our situation and instead experience afresh and anew, and maybe for the first time, the peace of a Savior, the one who said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, And may that peace be celebrated by us this Christmas time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.